All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I believe this is episode number 22. Maybe 23. Unsure. We've been doing a bunch of these. Uh, I'm joined, as always, with my handsome colleague, Dr. Baraki. Dr. Baraki, what's going on, buddy? Doing all right. Uh, sitting here recording on a beautiful Friday. Have the day off. On call in the hospital tonight. Ready to talk about some programming. <laughs> is that really a day off if you have to go into work tonight? Well... You know, just playing your own mental mind games as usual. So that's what, I, I, see, I, that's yeah. what I have to tell myself. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. You have to hype yourself up. Do you take pre-workout before you go into the hospital to like I, it? <laughs> I make I make two or three coffees and take them all in with me, and then just kind of bolus them throughout the night to keep myself around that three thirty in the morning time frame. It is hard to get through sometimes. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Brain. Brain fatigue. Real fatigue. Hey, that's a <laughs> nice. That's a nice segue into what we're talking about today. So. Everyone, this is part one of uh, X. Uh, X. Yeah, not sure yet of the programming podcast series. Arbel Medicine presents the programming podcast with your hosts, Dr. Austin Baraki and Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. So we want to talk about some of the recent developments, some of the disagreements that have been had amongst us and others, and really set the record straight about our opinion on programming, why we think that, and try to simplify it a little bit too. Because if it's not practical, it's not applicable uh, for people, then it's not very useful. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about super training the book. <laughs> yeah. So, right. yeah. so let, let's just hop into it. We're going to start with some definitions and uh and and go from there so first thing let's talk about stress let's define stress baraki you want to give us a brief overview of your definition of stress well i think that i think uh, people should understand kind of where we're starting and where we're going we're starting out with the concept or the paradigm that people are generally going to be familiar with the idea of applying a stress recovering from said stress and subsequently generating an adaptation uh, that tends to be specific to the imposed stressor. And so, you know, in, in, in the training world, in the programming world, there are tons of different options as to what type of stress to deliver, how to deliver that stress, and then subsequent variables uh, that kind of modify the type of stress that, that your body is seeing. And these are all things that we will talk about and have been talked about at length previously. Um, and so I think that uh, we have described stress as uh, kind of a phenomenon that results in you having a decreased level of performance. I think that's the way that you have put it most recently. And we actually tend to kind of subclassify stress a little bit into stressors that tend to be productive uh, versus those that tend to be non-productive. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between these two, th these two things? Uh, yeah, sure. So, and, and the other thing I would like to really say with regards to stress uh, and it decreasing your performances, that performance decrease can be very transient, um, mm -hmm. you know, literally minutes, hours, um, or a day or multiple days. Uh, yep. So there's like this sort of spectrum of like time uh, where it can affect performance. Uh, an easy example would be if you did uh, one rep at RP8 or where you had two, two reps left in reserve and let's say that was at 500 pounds. Well, for some period of time after you did that, you'd be unable to repeat that at the same qualitative sort of effort level at the same RPE. Um, but you know, five minutes later, seven minutes later, 10 minutes later, you could potentially repeat that. So that is a stress. Now, whether that's enough stress to do anything uh, is what it, exactly I'm going to talk about now. So there are, uh, broadly speaking, two categories of stress, productive stress and non-productive stress. Productive stress, uh, by definition, is any training, in this context, any training stress that improves the desired outcome or outcomes. So from a strength training perspective, uh, it would improve either mus muscle cross-sectional area, muscular hypertrophy, or muscular strength through some other uh, method, either skill improvement, neuromuscular improvement, something something of that nature. So when we stick to the strength realm and we talk about productive stress, you're getting stronger, bigger, both. That's that's pretty, very simply speaking. Uh, Non-productive stress is by definition any type of training stress that does not contribute to the desired outcomes. And again, in the strength training world, that would be 
improvement in strength through neuromus you know uh, neurological improvement or uh, muscle hypertrophy um, if we were talking about endurance there are training methods that you could do that don't improve your conditioning or your uh, performance uh, in a conditioning event and similarly if we talk about sports specific training there is a lot of training that you can do that doesn't improve your performance in a sport specifically so again there's productive and non-productive stress uh, easy example again of non-productive stress would be lighting yourself on fire is very stressful all right but ultimately doesn't contribute to uh, improving your performance uh, a more sort of salient uh, example would be if you do a very heavy bone on bone five sets of five effort okay it's not that you don't get a gold, you get a gold star for doing something very difficult and overcoming that, that task, uh, you know, overcoming that obstacle. Um, but that may not contribute to improving your one rep max as well as a different type of reps, rep set and intensity scheme. So just because it was harder doesn't mean it's more effective. So you're suggesting that this, as with most things that we talk about here, is less of a discrete categorization and more of a spectrum of kind of productiveness of stress. Kind of like we talk about spectrum of specificity. There are going to be things that contribute better or worse to generating the desired outcome and adaptation. I mean, yes, of course. Uh, and that's going to be based on a ton of things. Um, individual response to training variables, training history, expectations of training. So there's definitely a psychological component. And then, of course, the actual stresses themselves. But we're, what we're saying is that not all stress is uh, a productive or as productive as another stress. There are differences um, in how the human organism responds to certain stresses, even if they're rather similar. Again, an example would be a 5RM, which is about 85, 86% of a 1RM, and a set of five at 80%. Now, just off the cuff, you're saying, well, the 5RM is more stressful, which I would probably agree with, but it doesn't mean it's a productive stress. And if it's not productive, then what is the point of exposing yourself to that and that, that's that's kind of the real nitty gritty when we when we're going to start talking about actually practical examples of programming. Um, so harder isn't always better, heavier isn't always better, but by the same token, lighter isn't always better either. I mean, we're we're saying that this thing is nuanced. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. So then we need to get into. So we're going to deliver this stress, which can't has the potential to be more or less useful for a given person in the context of their programming. We need to talk about how can we expect them to respond to this stress. And so the next concept, which is arguably one of the most important concepts we're going to lay out in this whole podcast, is the idea of sensitivity versus resistance. And so kind of the, 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 the context in which people are probably going to be the most familiar with this is when people talk about something like insulin resistance, where you tend to be, you know, you, you may have accumulated a lot of adipose tissue or just for, through genetic bad luck, um, you tend to have uh, your body cells tend to respond not quite as well to uh, a given con serum concentration of insulin. And so you need a higher amount of insulin to overcome that resistance. And so this is the, uh, the mechanism or this is kind of what ends up happening in a condition like type 2 diabetes where you get more, you know, insulin resistant to the point where we need to give you exogenous insulin. Or the alternative thing that we sometimes do in treating patients with diabetes is we give them treatments that will artificially sensitize them to insulin. So there are various medications that can make you more sensitive to the insulin that you already have. So, yeah, that is not that. <laughs> so, so, so sensitivity and resistance basically talks about the robustness of the physiologic response to a given stimulus. So, you know, if I have two people, one who is very thin, lean, metabolically healthy, the other is an end-stage type two diabetic, one person's cells will respond very robustly to a small dose of insulin, do what you'd expect it to do. The next person's cells would not respond to that dose of insulin and they would need either artificial means of sensitizing them to that same dose of insulin or they would need a whole bunch more exogenous insulin to increase the dose. Right. I like I like the perfume the perfume the perfume analogy. So, so it's you know we talk about insulin and people they're if they're not used to talking about it they they get a little crazy. Uh, so the perfume sort of metaphor or analogy for this is um, if you walk into a room and somebody is wearing way too much perfume, all you can smell is the perfume, and you're very very sensitive at that point to the perfume 
because you haven't smelled it before. It's new. Wow. All you smell is perfume. But 20 minutes later, you stop smelling it. You've desensitized yourself to it because you've been overwhelmed with it. That's kind of like a, a very uh, crap. That's like you developing insulin resistance in a very short period of time. So the only way the that's the only way the only way that you can either smell the you can smell the perfume again is either by adding more perfume to the deal. So taking exogenous insulin or leaving the room <laughs> right and, and to smell a different smell which is uh some things that would resensitize yourself uh then you can re-enter the room and ah insulin good uh, yes uh, ah, okay. perfume so, so let's so, translate this to training this this uh works rather rather well to help explain the phenomena that we see under the bar yeah so so a given stress that is novel is very stressful and, and just there are no units for measuring stress. But if you're seeing an exercise and a, a rep scheme and a set scheme for the first time, um, it's uh, if it's new to you, it's very it can be very stressful, meaning that it causes a more prolonged and more robust dip in uh, performance. And it doesn't mean that that has to be really, really hard. Correct. Again, Correct. To circle exactly. around to this idea is, you know, it could be something that you've never seen before and it is a physiologic stressor insofar sure. as it provokes a physiologic response, not it is really, really hard. So we have to yes, kind of divorce those ideas in people's head. Yeah. It's just new to you. And so, and there, how you determine that it's stressful is that it causes a more robust, uh, a longer lasting decrease in performance. That's that's really, you know, the kind of the definition or the the end effect of stress. So if it's new to you for the first time, yes, very stressful. The next time you see that thing, it's less stressful. This is the the an example of the repeated bout effect. When you see something the second time, it's easier to recover from than the first time. Regardless if the weight is heavier, for instance, when it comes to training. Why? Because the exercise isn't new anymore. The rep and set scheme isn't new anymore. Okay, just because the weight is heavier, well, your performance is also better. Better. So the relative loading may in fact be the same, but now you're better at tolerating that stress. Meaning that same sort of input is less stressful. And at some point, if you keep repeating the same workouts, the same workouts, even with more weight, Okay, you're not imparting enough stress on the organism to drive that stress recovery adaptation thing that we're, we're, we're getting into. So the, the point of this, the whole point of this discussing the repeated bout effect and, and desensitizing yourself to training uh, or a particular training method is to say that as if the workouts stay the same over time, you they're less stressful. They cause less of a disruption of homeostasis and you get a less a smaller adaptation because you don't need to do that anymore. So there are ways to change the stress so that you resensitize yourself to it. So you could add more stress, more stress usually occurring in the form of more volume. OK, so that's adding more perfume to the room. Uh, you could leave the room for a different room with a different smell. That's exercise variation market change in rep and set schemes that you're that are novel so for instance if all you've ever done is fives and you switch to tens then <laughs> that's a stress for you even if the exercise even if the exercise selection is the same right and so things you'll notice you'll be more sore in general it'll call it you'll get uh, 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 a, a longer dip in uh, performance because again it's a new it's a novel to you so you can change the exercises that that's uh, you can add volume uh, or alternatively you can just get out of the room don't and go to a, a room where there's no smells <laughs> which is a deload which basically allows you to detrain a small amount so that you resensitize yourself to uh, the stimulus now there are there's a time and place for all of these different applications and it really depends on the trainee and, and kind of what you're doing. Okay. But, uh, you know, the, uh, a very practical example would be on a starting strength, novice linear progression. When you take a reset, when you take 10% of weight off the bar, previously you were adapted to a, doing a heavier weight of the same exercise for the same rep and set schemes. What do you think is happening acutely when you take weight off the bar? It's a small detraining effect. And then as you work your way back up to the weights you were previously handling, the, the idea is that you've resensitized yourself to that training stress and it'll work. 
for a little bit, for but a you have weeks, to, maybe. Yeah. yeah, but you have to understand the real, the main reason why the program, that program stopped working was because you've seen the same workout, the same reps, the same sets at the same relative intensity for weeks now. And so you've just become really good at tolerating it. It's not stressful enough. And that overall, if you can take away one pearl from this deal is the reason why your programming is not working is likely because the stress is not enough to drive the adaptation. And again, to hammer the point home, that does not mean it is not hard. Sure, exactly. The stress We're talking is- about physiologic stressor in terms of the uh, the kind of the the disruption of homeostasis and subsequent adaptation that we see at the level of all the different components of your neuromuscular system that go into producing force. So, you know, you have the nervous system recruitment, neuromuscular recruitment, motor unit stuff, muscle cross-sectional area, contractile machinery, all that kind of stuff is involved in producing force. And so kind of those are those are the things that are responding to the stressor. It does not mean it. We're not talking about whether or not it's hard stress as perceived by the organism in terms of a physiologic sense is what we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is the, the sort of fire thing. Like if I light you on fire, it's very difficult, but it's probably not going to make you stronger. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've covered uh, kind of some important concepts in stress. We could talk about stress probably for hours longer. And actually I probably will end up talking about it longer at our seminar next weekend. Yeah, so this seems like a good time for us to take a little break, uh, talk about some upcoming events. Uh, we'll come back with the next segment where we talk about recovery and adaptation. All right, thanks again for checking out the Barbell Medicine podcast. We couldn't do this without you guys. We do have seminars coming up this year. First off, in July, we'll be in Brooklyn, New York for a full Barbell Medicine seminar. We'll also be in Seattle, Washington in September. For those of you who are just looking to improve your lifts or want some one-on-one coaching, check us out. We'll be in Santa Cruz for a one-day training camp. We're going to cover the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, and the press, along with the Q&A afterwards. So head over to the barbellmedicine.com website and register today. All right, welcome back. We're talking about programming here. I'm with Dr. Baraki. We're going to talk about recovery and adaptation now after discussing stress. So, Dr. B, can I call you Dr. B? You, you may. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, recovery is super interesting in that everybody wants to improve it. It's kind of a squishy thing where we can't really get a read on it until after you've done something, right? Like until you have like a, like you can look at it post, uh, do a postmortem or, or retrospective <laughs> analysis right. of your of your recovery. Uh, I think it's going to be useful to like define recovery, like what it actually is, and then discuss kind of how we can measure it. And then finally, um, We'll talk about the ways that you can either improve it or not improve it. So first, let's start out with the definition. What do you what do you define? How do you define recovery? Yeah, recovery. So in contrast to the stressor, which resulted in a decreased level of performance for whatever time period uh, resultant from the stressor, we talk about recovery as the opposite side of that scenario where your recovery, uh, where your performance returns to the baseline level that it was at prior to delivery delivering that stress. Uh, so basically, the return to baseline is uh, recovery. Right. Which may, which may take, again, minutes, hours, days, weeks, you know, it, it just really depends on the nature of the stress and, and the actual performance that you're, you're, you're measuring, you know, so if it's in weightlifting, it, if it's, you know, lifting a weight, then usually we measure this stuff in, uh, in days or weeks, just, just in general. Although, although if you have repeated sets, so sets across, then your stress, you can have an intra-workout stress that you recover from and you know can subsequently reperform the thing. Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize that the stresses, as we mentioned earlier, um, are kind of dynamic insofar as their effect on the organism can, uh, can have uh, an effect for variable length of time. And that's also impacted by the extent to which the repeated bad effect has taken place. In other words, how sensitive are they to that given stressor? In addition, you're constantly, in, in the same way that the organism is constantly responding to the stressor that they receive, they're also dynamically kind of constantly in a state of recovery as well. It's kind of a back and forth all the time. And so, you know, we try to discuss these things sometimes giving kind of discrete time periods for things, but that's not really how the body works. It's constantly responding to the composite of stressors that it's receiving as well as recovering for them. It doesn't really see a calendar uh, when it's dealing with these things. 
Right. And so and so in the same way that calories don't have a clock, your body just kind of is like always both building and breaking down tissues and assimilating things and responding to the net stimulus over like weeks and weeks and weeks. The body does the same way with response to training. So uh, having like discrete periods of time where you're sort of expecting a stress recovery adaptation to occur in full, I think is the faulty way of looking at programming. Yeah, well, physiology and the programming in respective to to the physiology. So um, an overload event, this concept has been discussed uh, numerous times, you know, where and that's basically what we're talking about with stress. An overload event is effectively a productive stress that's been applied to a person that's been recovered from and subsequently adapted to as demonstrated through their training. But there are no such there is no discrete overload event that you can potentially like uh, measure or, or, you know, put on a calendar like, oh, if you're a quote unquote novice, then your overload event is one day and you, you, you subsequently adapt uh, 48 hours later because every every training session that you you go, you do it, you're accumulating stress. There is some stress that has accumulated that has not been completely recovered and adapted to. And it's just a sort of rolling ball of stress recovery, adaptation, stress recovery, adaptation. Um, and, and so you never completely realize the, the totality of all the stress and recovery in one single adaptation uh, until much, much later on. Uh, and in fact, you you would say that the last few sessions of a novice, pro, you know, successful novice progression is effectively the summation of accumulated training stress. Correct, it's a delayed training effect. And so it's important to realize that as a novice, your, your, the stress does accumulate, it adds up. You're not completely dissipating it. Um, within that same breath, I will say that the decay of certain physical adaptations uh, is faster for a novice than a more well-trained uh, person who's been lifting for a longer period of time. And what I mean by that is if you stop training, right, it's not that you're gonna have this marked, you know, stratus, meteoric rise to strength stardom because you've have all this uh, uh, accumulated stress. You just haven't been training long enough to have enough accumulated stress to peak, right? And further and further, because you don't have that, instead of going up, you actually, the, your strength decays, it goes down, um, which is kind of, uh, uh, which wouldn't necessarily happen with a person who's been training longer, who has a bigger base of stress that they've built up. They could actually train much, much less for a period of time, a week or so, and actually see an improvement. Whereas if a novice did that, they would actually, uh, their performance would go down in general. Uh, okay, so we've defined recovery. We kind of talked about how how these discrete events of like stress recovery adaptation probably not really occurring based on physiology. Uh, how do we measure recovery though, other than like this objective performance? You know, so so you were saying that I mean, if you define recovery as the return to baseline performance, then you're saying, well, you got to test that every day. Are, are there any other metrics that you could use? There are so there are some out there, and I think before we mention that, we should probably also discuss the concept of fatigue as it plays into this. And so fatigue is kind of um, this summation of the, the summation of the stressors that you're dealing with at a given time, and it has kind of objective and subjective components. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a whole lot of discussion about fatigue and peripheral fatigue and central fatigue and muscle fatigue and CNS and all this all this other kind of stuff that gets kind of compartmentalized. But again, that's kind of a simplistic view of the neurobiological organism that we are. Um, stuff is stuff is more complex than that. And so, fatigue in the most compelling kind of definition or explanation that I've seen so far. Uh, basically breaks it down into two components. Uh, one is called um, performance fatigability, which refers to that decrement in performance that you see. And so you can attribute that decrement in performance to performance fatigability um, after you received a given stressor. But there's another whole component to it, and that is perceived fatigability. That is this perception that is a more subjective marker, but it results from various components involved in the psychological state and kind of where your home, where your homeostasis is. So, you know, how awake, aroused are you for a given training session? Uh, you're, yes, very, yes, yes. Yerkes Dodson Law, bro. Uh, so, you know, your mood state, your motivation, um, things like that, that all, that people all are, you know, well aware of when they go into it, when they go into the gym for a given training session, they might go in with 
low expectations. They might be complaining that they feel beat up or tired or sore or whatever, things like that. Those are all perceptions related to recovery. But as we also know, those aren't always the a perfect predictor of performance. Uh, and so sometimes you'll still have a good per uh, performance under the bar. And that has to do with the performance fatigability side of the equation. So there are these two components. And so that kind of comes into play when we talk about measuring things like recovery sometimes. So one, one metric that gets thrown around a lot uh, or is discussed, it seems scientific, it's, it's uh, you know, a compelling kind of idea is that of heart rate variability. Um, and so kind of the physiologic theory underlying that is that your heart rate variability basically refers to um, the time between uh, between the um, between heartbeats, basically, assuming that you have a normal sinus rhythm beating heart and you're not in fibrillation, right? So, so the variability in time between heartbeats for, um, and so that is well, thought to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, well, the heart rate variability thing, yeah, we're, I mean, we're talking about it, it so, I think just as a baseline, people will have to understand that you have both parasympathetic and sympathetic inputs to your heart rate. So parasympathetic is the rest and digest, you know, that's slowing down the heart rate provided by the vagus nerve onto the heart. Okay. And then the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight nervous system uh, uh, aspect of the autonomic nervous system. And so uh, if you get scared, if you're training, if you're, you know, anything that requires you to like get up and go. All right, you're putting, you're dumping adrenaline and noradrenaline onto the heart to get it to beat faster. So the idea is the more recovered you are, the more vagal input you have into the heart and the vagal nerve, the vagus nerves input to the heart is more variable, meaning that you'd have these sort of undulations in your resting heart rate that are more significant uh, and that would correlate somehow at some level, some specificity, some sensitivity to your current training state um, that you could subsequently adjust your training based on it. Uh, there, as you know, there is some evidence for this in endurance athletes, some. Although... I think it's been overstated, <laughs> the utility of it. I, 100%, because they're not using the heart rate variability to say, oh, and well, because it's this, I'm going to do change my pace. I'm going to change my volume. I'm go and that's on a day to day basis. It's too micro. It's too myopic it, when you're planning training. Um, so I actually don't think that it's a useful thing to use for recovery. I, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think again that, like I said, the data in terms of its utility and then use uh, using that information for subsequent management of your training, I think is uh, less useful than has been advertised. Yeah, it's certainly not evidence based. So there's that. And then second, second to that is imagine, let's say, theoretically, you know, you're 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 a big wearable tech fan, you know, you gotta you gotta be cool and you have a uh, a thing that says, oh, your recovery is only at 60% or your your heart rate variability says you're at 60% recovery. How do you think that's gonna impact your training session? It, it's unlikely to have a spontaneous, like positive effect. It's probably gonna be negative uh, because your expectations of the, going to the gym are worse, A, and then B, your your perceived level of fatigue is also higher now. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize the the kind of multifactorial deal that is fatigue. All the different variables that go that go into the output that is fatigue. Um, and so when you recognize that, looking at one metric, like looking at just the heart rate variability, fails to recognize a whole bunch of other things. And then on top of that, when uh, the instant you measure it and you see that number, all of a sudden you have then influenced some of the other factors in in fatigue and so you know this is a classic nocebo situation that we talk about all the time because you may your your perceived fatigability may be low you may say i'm feeling fine today and then you look at your thing and it tells you that your heart rate variability is off and what if it's just a measurement error and then you screwed yourself up for the day because it told you to take a set off your training because of that or something like that yeah so so the the takeaway from this like so i personally do not recommend any of that wearable tech and I think that athletes who use that are actually doing themselves a disservice because it's not sensitive or specific enough to actually guide your management on that sort of micro level, you know, that day to day level. And for, the only thing it could potentially do is hurt you. I mean, so, so so everybody's had this scenario who's been training for a long time has had this situation. You're a little hungover. You feel uh, not so good. And you go in and you PR. 
like almost everybody has had that experience. Uh, other times you felt great subjectively and you go in and, and you have a bad training session by whatever metric you're using to define that. Everybody's had those experiences. So even your like body's internal sort of like gestalt about how you feel <laughs> based on your being able to take in literally millions of different data points of, of your daily experience is not right. So you think that this little wearable tech thing that's using an algorithm based on no data <laughs> is going to be useful? No. It. You know what it is? You know what it is? It's a sales tool. I'm going to I'm going to make up a problem and sell you something to solve it because you want to know more information. It's red pill, red pill, blue pill thing, except for the, this red pill is actually wrong. <laughs> if you if you are wearing this wearable tech and you're advertising on your social media, then I think that you're probably one standard deviation below <laughs> on the uh, for your IQ. All right. You're tra- let's you're train you're training you're training IQ. Let's move on. Well, it is it, it is like well, I don't know. Maybe it's just I, I deal with it more with with potential clients or people sliding in my DMs or say, "Oh, my whoop score is a 60. What do I do?" And I'm like, "Just Train. take your whoop off, <laughs> lay it on the ground, yeah. call a friend over with a large truck, yeah. <laughs> run it, run it over, right, and then go train, and then and then light it on fire. Yeah, yeah, okay, and then and then go train. So there's some just, other ideas okay. about measuring fatigue. Um, you want to talk about yes. this next one? So yeah, so the okay, your recovery capacity or your fatigue tolerance goes up markedly as you become more trained. Meaning that the more advanced of a lifter you are, the more fatigue you can tolerate. Okay, without seeing such a large drop off in performance. Um, this also, again, this goes back to the repeated bout effect as well. And the fact that when you're training, you're developing sort of resources to tolerate more training. So uh, very simply stated, the repeated bout effect, again, is your ability to better tolerate a given stimulus. Well, imagine being able to better tolerate a series of stimuli uh, and so that you don't become as fatigued. Your work capacity is increased. Uh, your ability to uh, consistently perform with, you know, uh, uh, in a given workout, you fatigue less. That all improves as you become more trained. Again, because it's just less of a stress than it once was to you, which is one of the reasons why you have to accumulate more stresses over time. Uh, this this can change when the training input changes. So if you start training less, if your training volume goes down, if you uh, uh, do anything that decreases the stress that you're applying to yourself, you now become more fatigable, your tolerance goes down, but you may in fact perform better for a short period of time. Until it's like a it's like an inflection point. It's like okay, we're removing all this stress while we're also letting this work capacity decay a little bit, and you peak. Yeah. And, and at that point, at that point, hopefully you need to start. Hopefully that's on meat day. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's not, then you probably messed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I find I find that the tapers and uh, peaking things that people use are, are are often far too long. Yes. Because these things decay rather readily. Mm-hmm. Uh, your work capacity uh, and your um, ability to tolerate training. Um, again, if you take a complete week off of training, you come back and you do what you were doing before. People are like, eh, I'm sore. It's like. Well, yeah, dude, you your, your work capacity just decayed significantly. Um, also, depends on what you've been doing that past week. Usually, it's like a vendor of yeah, right, <laughs> dr- drugs, alcohol, and hookers, and it's like, well, you got that's probably not going to do well from your your tolerance of your tolerance of training. Um, and so, not only la- not only is it that as you get more trained, your recovery capacity increases, you can tolerate more fatigue, but that also must happen for long-term training to be be productive. This is an essential component of long-term training is increasing someone's work capacity so that they can deliver and handle sufficient stress to continue making progress over the long-term. If you've, the the longer you fail at increasing someone's work capacity, the more you're delaying what has to happen down the line. Yeah, you're setting them back in a way. So, So one of our biggest gripes against running it out with respect to the LP or switching to something like old man Texas method, which by the way is just a nocebo like in the title. It's like, so uh, one of our biggest gripes against switching to those type of programs is that they do not address the lack of work capacity that the 
the lifter has and then subsequently needs to for long-term training development and you know the the feet the pushback that we get from that is well these they they're not even lifting you know that much weight the they're they're only squatting in the mid 200s you know and you want these people to do more volume it's like okay so so handful of problems one don't we always say that the weight on the bar doesn't determine the advanced level of the lifter Right. We always say that. So, OK, it seems interesting that we can use this in reverse. And then and then second, what you're telling me is that a person with a average response to training, so not super robust and not super depressed, OK, uh, is going to require more training to get better than somebody who has a crazy high response to training like Okay, that seems like perfectly reasonable. So if you if you end your novice LP, if you're a male, you know, between uh, 25 and 45 and you end your novice LP at a squat at like in a, the mid to upper 200s, you're average. Yeah. Okay, that doesn't mean you'll always be average, but that's an average response. That's where, I, end, that's you, where I ended my novice LP, 285 for three sets of five, yeah. Which is interesting because I would not say that you're an average lifter. I would say that, if anything, you have a robust response to training as evidenced by the fact that and other factors that go into you being a successful lifter. So even somebody who you would expect to have a, you know, wow, their LP went so well, maybe not. It, all it is literally. So to me, and again, this may be jumping the gun, but I, I feel like it's important to say the novice linear progression to me is base building. It's giving you a sort of, okay, I've literally never done anything before. I'm going to train to learn these movements, you know, get in the habits of going to the gym. I'm going to refine my technique. I'm going to add weight to the bar up until it's challenging and, and see how much I can squeeze out of that yeah. without changing any other variables. Mm -hmm. And it's going to last three months. Yeah. And then once I stop responding to that, I have said, okay, look, now I need more training stress. I need to develop this work capacity is it the best way for a person who's never trained before to train? I mean, I don't know if I can say that just because my my brain doesn't allow that. We need to say it doesn't allow us to say absolute things like that. But it is a fine it's a fine way for people to get started. But um, again, once it once it ends, it ends, and we need to look towards developing the characteristics and qualities that are necessary for long term adaptation. Well, biggest problem you can have is if you tell me that you've been on the novice LP or a derivation of for six months, no, you haven't, and you need to get a new coach. It's inappropriate. And, and, and further to just throw back to what we were talking about, that discrete overload events don't actually probably exist due to the nature of physiology that you're always stressing, recovering, adapting over time, like consistently without end, that assessment of the amount of a uh, stress that you're applying to your lifter as a coach, okay, has to be measured by objective improvements. Ha, ha, I mean, it has to be like, and you can use different, different proxies for that, but you can't say, oh, well, over a week or over a day, you know, and switch and change the terms, right? You can't say my overload event is one day and now it is intermediate, it's a week, right? And now as a advanced lifter, it's a month. And then say, oh, well, look, my volume has gone up based on these things. Like, well, no, you just changed the goalposts. Of, you're, you're assessing this incorrectly because stress recovery adaptation is always occurring, always occurring. So it, it, at best, you can compare programs to each other by assessing the like weekly some metrics. Some standardized time frame. Yeah, but it can't. you can't change it. Just like you can't compare a set of five at one weight to a set of three at another weight, a set of one at another weight, <laughs> unless there's marked differences in them, right? So if you do 315 for five and then 330 by three and then 355 for one, are you stronger at any of those points? Don't know. I, I don't know. Hey, let's take a break. We're going to talk to you guys about some PeriRx supplements. All right, over on the barbellmedicine.com website or amazon.com, we are selling Perry RX. That is our Perry workout blend. We have two versions without caffeine, one version with caffeine for those who want to treat it as a pre-workout. It's got everything you need from a Perry workout supplementation standpoint to improve your performance, maximize your recovery, and hopefully you see a little benefit. We also sell a very high quality whey protein isolate, and that's also available on the amazon.com website or our website, barbellmedicine.com. All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We've talked about stress. We've talked about recovery. I'm going to talk to Baraki. We're going to talk about adaptation and the specificity of the adaptation to imposed demand, the said principle. Baraki, give us a rundown on what the said principle is, what it means, and a practical takeaway. Yeah, so this is something that is super crucial. Probably a good proportion of the listeners are probably familiar with it. Uh, the adaptation that we're talking about is basically whatever physical 
outcome or whatever outcome that you're that you're kind of tracking in this training process, whether it be some endurance related outcome or strength related outcome, hypertrophy related outcome, whatever whatever outcome you're looking at. For our purposes, of course, we like to talk about strength, so we'll talk about that. Um, and so the said principle basically is uh, a way of saying that your body will adapt in a way that is specific to the stressor that was applied to it. Meaning, if you apply a quote unquote strength stimulus, you will develop strength. Uh, you know, we've, they talk about this a lot where, you know, if you go, you know, sun, sun tanning and you lie on your belly, you don't, uh, you don't get tan on your belly, you get tan on your back. I think that's like the usual one that they describe, but it's basically your body responds kind of in a commensurate fashion to the stressor that was, that was applied to it, not in some random other way, not in a less specific way. You don't develop divergent physical characteristics from a given training stressor. Yeah, I think that's actually perfect. Um, the measurement of those specific sort of training outcomes, uh, adaptations, is of importance not only to the lifter, right, because why are you training, but also as a coach for managing training. So what you would like to do is have a certain uh, metric, uh, measurement of how those things are improving. And you would hope that they're sensitive and specific enough to inform your coaching. Uh, basically, what I mean is you wouldn't want to measure something that doesn't actually tell you what you're trying to, to find out. Um, so so it's been put out there that doing as long as your heavy set of five is going up on a week to week basis, that that is sensitive and specific enough to tell you if you're stronger. Uh, and I disagree with that. And I actually think that the the that the people who came up with that would disagree with just that that soundbite as well. Um, my take on it is if you squat 330 for a set of five on one week and then 335 for a set of five on the next week, but it's way harder on the second week, I don't know if you're actually stronger. You need to have some sort of qualitative assessment in there to tell you, are these efforts equal or significantly different? Because if you did 330 on the first week for a set of five and you had three reps left in the tank and you did 335 for five on the second week and it was a 10 out of 10 bone on bone grinder. Well, not only did you actually not get stronger, okay, you may have gotten weaker and that stress may not have been appropriate to drive the desired adaptation. So you would wanna know all of the things as a coach that subsequently affect your management. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with picking numbers for your lifters, saying, hey, you should probably go squat or bench or press this number, this weight. But you also should have some sort of qualitative metric. Like, and here's how hard it should be to, for the desired training stress. Um, so, so I don't agree that a 5RM is sensitive enough or specific enough without a qualitative metric attached to it to tell you if the programming is working well for making somebody stronger. Further... I think that a 5RM is most sensitive at telling telling you if somebody's 5RM is getting better, which is a performance in and of itself. Now, a 5RM is an arbitrary number, just like a 1RM is an arbitrary number. The 1RM has the benefit of being an actual contested event. So if you're a competitive power lifter, then you're really most concerned about your 1RM. You don't care about your 3RM, your 5RM, just like you certainly don't care about your 30RM. You only care about the 1RM. So one metric that we use uh, very often at, for our lifters uh, post novice progression is to do a single at RPE 8. The single at RPE 8, where it's basically a one, one rep at your 3RM, uh, it's effectively the same, is a good proxy for telling you, well, what is your current performance level like? And as a, as a proxy, how are you adapting to the training? So if your single at RP8 is going up week by week, then you have your, your gestalt is that, yeah, I'm getting stronger. And the single is pretty sensitive and specific for an improving 1RM, right? It also has the benefit of being submaximal so that it doesn't apply a ton of non-productive training stress to you. A 3RM is significantly more stressful than a single at eight. Um, and the what's the point? It doesn't, all it would tell you then is how your 3RM is trending. Okay, uh, and then you have both a quantitative input, the number, and then you have a qualitative input, the RPE. Those are two things that, that are helpful there. So we like using that to see how is somebody responding to training. It's very sensitive, very specific, especially for power lifters. Another thing that we like using are estimated one rep maxes. Estimated one rep, one rep maxes uh, have the benefit of 
going off a submaximal value again, which submaximal training by definition is better at improving <laughs> your one RM or maximal performance than maximal training. Um, this is an aside. <laughs> this overtraining thing has been ridiculous. But I, the guy, <laughs> I think we're going to have to come and do a separate podcast on that whole topic. Oh yeah, totally. But just a, an interesting aside about this study. So whenever I, somebody talks about overtraining in the context of resistance training, I'm like, Hey, where's the data? Please suggest show, show data, you know, that this occurs with any regularity, with any sort of, yeah, uh, yeah. Gener- how is it applicable? And they're like, Oh, Google. So they'll <laughs> Google resistance training over, over training. And will you find two studies by Fry and Kramer, uh, of NSCA fame? Um, and what they did is they took 17 people and they, they had one group of 11 people who squatted in a squat machine, a one RM daily for two weeks. And they had six people was, who squat. I think, I think, didn't it say they did 10 singles at their, at hundred percent one RM? That's I'm pretty sure that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. 10 singles yeah. at one RM. So that, yeah. tells you something yeah, about yeah. that <laughs> daily daily <laughs> for two weeks and then the other the other group did 50 percent of their one rm on the squat machine daily for two weeks the interesting thing is none neither of them none of their average strength improved like nobody got better <laughs> except for a few in the in the people who were doing the one rms which is makes sense you get yeah. better at doing single one rms yeah yeah but their cortisol levels did not go up their testosterone levels did not go down they had no like neuroendocrine response that you would is classic like overtraining it's just they had terrible training methods which again is not surprising if you it's fry and kramer so uh, <laughs> but, but 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 anyway that back back to this uh we like to use the estimate of one rm it, that 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 study kind of just shows you that training maximally all the time doesn't necessarily improve your one rm reliably um but yes training submaximally in that 70 80 percent range is kind of kind of our jam and so you can use a rep and RPE assignment, so five reps at RP8, for instance, or six reps at RP8, six reps at RP9, and use the weight you did by the reps you did at the RPE to give you an estimated 1RM. And you can track those across a bunch of different exercises, okay? And you can see, is my estimated 1RM going up, staying the same, or going down? Now, is this as sensitive and as specific as a single at RP8 on the competition lifts, the squat, the bench, the deadlift, or the press if you're doing a strength lifting meet? No, I'm not arguing that it is. However, however, I think that it gets you pretty close, and I think it's more sensitive and more specific than a rep max in the context of productive training. Because a rep max is a test. It's a test. And if it's not, and and so just adding five pounds doesn't necessarily, uh, and you're able to complete it, doesn't necessarily tell me if you're stronger. Unless, unless it's happened over a really long period of time and the number, the difference is so big. So if you've just added five pounds and you went from 100 to 300, okay, yeah. you're stronger. <laughs> yeah, okay. it should be oh, uncontroversial. Okay, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so if it's happened over a long period of time significantly and the difference is great, then sure, you can use that. But otherwise, I don't know. If if at the at week one uh, you uh, you were able to squat five sixty for a set of four, and then at week twelve you squatted six twenty eight for a single, I actually don't know if you're stronger. The there are two different rep schemes, so you change the goal the goalposts, right? And there's no qualitative input there. So five sixty by four at RP nine or RP ten works out to about a six twenty eight single. So. What did you do in the inter- intervening 12 weeks? Okay. I think that I, I covered the sensitivity specificity and, and what we what we use. You could also use bar speed. I mean, there are other metrics to use besides RPE and and and, and rep. you could use bar speed. You could use a force plate. You could use, um, you know, some other reps in reserve, which is kind of a proxy of RPE, uh, kissing cousin, if you will. You could also, what else could you use, Brocky? I think those are the... I mean, I think the the other one that I tend to think about, as you said, is bar speed. People like using these devices, which have yeah. pros and cons for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you could use the Baraki eye scale. The, uh, <laughs> the degree of proptosis during the yeah, lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. The BES. Yeah. So there's a, it depends on what score you, what did you rate that? Yeah. Well, all right. So, so we've talked about kind of the basic components that we use to train people. Let's, before we break uh, the end of part one here, um, let's give people kind of a practical 
uh, understanding of this as to how it plays out. And the, the situation people are going to be most familiar with in this uh, in this stuff is just a novice, a simple novice progression. So we talked sure. about when we apply a stress, there's productive, non-productive stress, and uh, that results in a degree of fatigue, requires you to recover from. People have varying degrees of sensitivity to a given stressor, and that sensitivity also varies in the context of the repeated bout effect. And then you adapt in a specific manner, and we need to be able to track that adaptation in some way that's sensitive and specific. So what do you think is a good way to explain this to people in a practical way? Sure. So you have, let's just take two roads diverging into the woods, and we'll pick, we'll pick, pick, uh, your, pick your fighter. The, <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So we'll have a novice LP. That'll be our baseline uh, uh, training template. And we'll have two different people widely different in their level of training sensitivity uh, and their adaptability, their level, the, the rate at which they'll adapt to the to stress, the amount that they'll respond. Um, one is going to be an old vegan female and another is going to be a young male in the throes of puberty gaining weight, right? Uh, so the young male who's gaining weight in the throes of puberty on the novice progression is more sensitive to the training than the old vegan female, meaning that for every dose of stress, the three sets of five, for instance, he will get a larger improvement in his strength, in his muscle cross-sectional area, in uh, his ability to tolerate that stress. So not only does his adaptation to like, as far as objectively like strength and size go, improve more, but his adaptability to that is 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 an ability to recover from it has also improved to a greater degree okay uh, that being said since he is so sensitive after weeks and weeks and weeks go by he may still be able to run the novice lp for a longer period of time because he is so sensitive so fact so factors that improve your sensitivity to training being male having and and there and as you're a male your testosterone levels are much higher on average than females okay not to say that if you're a male and you have a different testosterone level within the normal range so 1000 versus 300 is not important but just being a male in general being younger in general having uh, a certain genotype that you're more explosive and more athletic broad shoulders carrying a lot of lean body mass naturally narrow you know narrower waist um, previous uh, train, you know, trainer activity history. If you've been an athlete your entire life, you've been in gymnastics and track and field and played all these sports. Maybe you swam for you 15 have, years. Maybe you have this hot, yeah, you have a great base of activity, right? And and motor patterns that you can draw on to be have a very effective training. And if you training and, and you've also developed a higher number of nuclei in your muscle cells, myonuclei that Correct. don't go away, and they all jump yeah. into action in response to a training stress, generate MPS, right. all that kind of stuff. So very, very sensitive trainee. Right. So that's why the LP will last longer and you'll have a more robust effect. And that's why you'll hear and see some people, I ran my novice LP up to 405 for three sets of five. It's like, well, of course you did, right? You're the perfect person to run this. That doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that everybody needs to just grind and grind and run their LP out to hit those numbers. Because if you're the old vegan female, right, who's been sedentary for a long period of time, that three sets of five initially may be far too much stress because not only are you super, super sent, uh, resistant rather to training, right? And you don't get a big response, but you have it, you have no basis of training for, for that to be added on to. So you put an older person on three sets of five day one, that might, that may be too much stress, but because they're resistant, you're going to have to get them there. You're gonna, you're gonna have to get them to, uh, a higher level of volume, higher level of training than a more sensitive cohort and a relative term. Yeah, so this is a super crucial concept. And again, why I said that the concept of sensitivity and resistance was like probably the most important one for this podcast, because we're talking about the robustness of response to the stimulus. And so in the same way we talk about older people having a poor response to dietary protein, for example, and our response, our way to manage that is to increase the dose of protein. The young kid in the earlier scenario, he could probably get away with taking 10 grams of protein per meal and he'd probably get a nice robust muscle 
protein synthesis response, particularly if he just trained. The older person might need 30 or 40 grams of protein. Of course, we can sensitize them a little bit to it by training, but all we're talking about is the robustness of response. So in the same way they're resistant to dietary protein, they're anabolically resistant in general. So all anabolic stimuli, they do not respond very well to. That includes dietary protein. That also includes resistance training. And so again, we're not talking about whether or not the training stress is hard. We're talking about to what extent it perturbs homeostasis sufficient to generate a given adaptation. When you give the same dose of stress to the young person who sensitive to the old person who's resistant, they don't generate the same level of adaptation because the old person's resistant. The conclusion that you draw from this is that they need to be, they need, you need to overcome it with a higher dose or they need to be sensitized to training in some other way. Like if you're going to put them on anabolic steroids, artificially sensitizes you to training. Yeah. So how would you sensitize uh, this old vegan female? Well, one, you would have her stop being a vegan Two, you would have her train for a substantial period of time and that will improve her training sensitivity on some level by being able to actually tolerate enough training to overcome her her, her resistance but you also just have to you, you'll have to give her more training stress relative to the younger to the younger person to get the same response yeah and again it's relative so it's not that we're throwing you know the young kid starts his texas method or whatever and or at the end of his lp squatting three sets of five at 405 we're not saying that the old frail vegan female needs to start squatting five sets of five at 315 because that's obviously not going to happen but in but how cool would that be pretty badass yes (laughs) lorraine lorraine at age 65 is going to be doing we'll make it happen yeah Yeah. (laughs) but yeah they're they're going to need uh increasing amount of stress again not hard but stress physiologically speaking to uh to make this go up yeah so i actually think the management of a of the older the older clientele doing one heavy set of five um and less volume is patently wrong i mean it's just it's you're doing a disservice to the clients themselves because you're not developing their work capacity and you're giving them less stress less productive stress overall just because you're afraid that they're old. And what I would do, instead of doing one heavy set of five or one heavy triple, I would have them do three, four, or maybe even five sets of five with a substantially lower weight. Uh, I the way my, my feeling on this is that if I think that 70 to 83% is kind of like the money range for intensity for training the lifts and in volume, that I think that that probably shifts 5% lower for older people and that you could get 65 to 77 percent is really your your sort of money range or maybe even lower i mean it really is going to depend but i that's the way i feel and instead of having people just do one set and that's it i would have them do multiple sets at a lower weight because that's going to add on the productive stress and they're going to get that response from it so i also, hear what i hear what i hear people thinking right now on the other end of this these speakers is that when you do that they're going to detrain yeah, because it's not heavy. So what do you say? So, well, I think that you have to define which physical characteristic that you're talking about detraining. If you're thinking it's their work capacity, well, precisely the opposite is happening. We're giving them more training that they have to deal with, so that improves their work capacity. Contrast to lower volume, which detrain actually does detrain their work capacity. Uh, if you're talking about strength, and if we'll, we will agree that strength is the production of force against an external resistance, how are we detraining their ability to produce force by requiring them to produce force in a relatively useful intensity range? That doesn't make any sense under somewhat fatigued states because they're doing multiple sets. So instead of doing one heavy set of five that is near maximal, we're taking a submaximal approach and doing it many times. So as the fatigue accumulates and the stress accumulates, that's what drives the adaptation. Further, further, we're... We're developing their ability to tolerate enough training to save their life. Yeah. Like literally, liter- literally, every medical pathology that can be addressed through resistance training has a volume threshold. I mean, that was when we were doing this up to date thing. That was the overwhelmingly like apparent yeah. thing to me. It's More like, training is better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, does resistance training help high blood pressure? Yes, but there's a volume threshold that you must overcome to get it and to dose work. Response. Correct. Yes. Uh, does obesity respond well to resistance training? Yes, but there's a volume <laughs> related uh, uh, sort of thing. Does uh, diabetes respond to resistance training? Sure, but there's a volume threshold and a dose related response. So there, it, it would bend the laws of physiology that training less, even though it's harder, in a 
training a resistance training resistant (laughs) population in an anabolically resistant person giving them a lower dose would give you a better response it yeah that's it it would just like lower protein doesn't work so we're not saying i mean look doing more volume certainly isn't easy but it's just a different type of hard get it getting up for one heavy set of five and agonizing about adding five pounds every week is can also be difficult. And and again, I've said I've said I said this recently that humans are not robots and humans are not calculators. And so there's this Train whole just math. There, there's there's the yeah, <laughs> there's this whole huge psychosocial component, neurobiological component um, to training. And so when you expect people to function like robots under the bar, people end up breaking. Um, and and kind of that's what we you know we have to deal with when people get burned out on some of these programs where they're uh, kind of they have been they have the expectation that the only way for them to continue getting stronger is to train as little as possible for as long as possible and as heavy as possible all the time right right the paradigm that paradigm is just patently wrong not evidence based and and even an anecdotal evidence so uh and and so i think the detraining argument you there's no basis for that argument it's just a soundbite that when taken on at its face value makes no sense. So uh, I think this is going to be a good introduction. Introduction. Yes. But, but one question that I think I have from, from the peoples of the internets, we talked about recovery and, and, and we didn't even address how do you improve recovery? And so I think, I think we can do this very quickly, uh, because, uh, which should, should clue everybody in like, uh, you know, how well, so, works. So, so people look at us and they look at how much we train or they hear that, you know, that we pulled six sets that day and then we squatted and we benched in the same day and we train four days a week and we have busy jobs and I do night calls all the time and have all this stuff. And how do I recover and continue to train is basically, I mean, I get asked this question a whole bunch. Yeah. What shoes are those? No, well, you, you're able to deal with the level of training you're training now because you've built up to it over time, and as your work capacity improves, your ability to tolerate training improves. Yes, that's literally, that's that's a very important thing for long-term training development. Second, second, you didn't, you know, your load selection is such that it allows you to train with a high amount of volume, which is one of our main reasons for not doing super high-intensity work is because it doesn't allow you to accumulate the volume you need for the training stress. Uh, I, don't, I, don't think I've been, I don't think I've been in a position where I hit a true, as you say, 10 out of 10 bone-on-bone grinder or failed. I haven't failed a rep in training in probably three-plus years or something like that because of just load selection uh, being, being an important thing. Smart, smart. He's wicked smart, this guy. <laughs> Um, but the, the things people are going to ask, well, what, how do I improve my recovery? Will foam rolling do it? Uh, no, foam rolling won't do it. Foam rolling has no mechanism by way it can work. You don't apply enough pressure to release any adhesions, A, and then B, adhesions don't exist. And then C, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then C, you're suggesting that it improves blood flow to the level of the muscle, which it actually doesn't. It improves blood flow to the level of the skin, which is actually what massage does as well. Yeah, it diverts so, blood flow away from the muscle. So here's, here's what I well, would say about these, very, like basically any recovery modality. You think about the mechanisms of fatigue that I described. There's the two components. Sure. There's the per- perceived fatigability, which has to do with your psychosocial state uh, primarily, sure. and then there's performance fatigability, and that's all the stuff that people tend to obsess over, like their blood flow to their muscles and their contractile machinery, their CNS and neurotransmitters and all that kind of stuff. And all these recovery modalities, these passive modalities that you're describing, things like foam rolling and massage and stuff like that, they do nothing for performance fatigability. To, sure. to the extent that someone says they work, they are working on the perceived fatigability side of the equation, the side where, as we say, it makes you feel good. But the problem sure. with these things is when people sell them under the kind of complex, science sounding performance fatigability side of the equation, which is all false. If they sure. all just said, come get a massage because it makes you feel good, then yeah, that's cool. We don't have a problem with saying that. But when they say things like, you know, we're going to use our hands to release your adhesions and regenerate your acetylcholine at the level of the neuromuscular junction, then, then we got a problem. I, I'm sure they're taking uh, that, uh, the <laughs> that, some medication for that. Um, yeah, I, I guess just the, the real thing is if you're even if you're using this under the perceived fatigability sort of guys i still don't like it because you're relying on things that aren't actually doing anything 
to imp- improve your performance. So what if you're in a situation where you don't have access to them? Well, now you start developing anxiety. You may nocebo yourself. So so look, I do, I do. I want to like run, run down these, these things. So one, foam rolling, no, it's not going to improve your recovery. Two, massage, not going to work. Hyperbaric oxygen chamber, not going to work. Voodoo bands, not going to work. E-stim, not going to work. Okay? Ice baths, not going to work. Like this stuff, there's the data is overwhelmingly clear when you look at these meta-analyses and reviews on actual performance, right? There are studies that don't measure performance, right? Objective performance Sensory that say outcome. they work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That say that they work, and somebody links that in their bio and Instagram to show that they're they have access to the internet. Like that's not what we're talking about. So if you want to improve your recovery, there are three things that you can do. Thing number one, you can train more with the appro- with appropriate training methods. <laughs> Two, you can sleep more to get the optimal amount of sleep for you, which is probably in that seven, eight hour range and make sure that your sleep habits are good. You don't have sleep apnea. Thing three, you can take a ton of drugs. You could just take all the drugs, even ones that aren't gonna, that you think that wouldn't work. So it takes a little acinopril, a little dash of that. Might help some angiogenesis. But yeah, no, if somebody's taking a lot of drugs, yes, the recovery level is gonna improve and you also make it more sensitive to training. So. Uh, probably not really works that probably not really applicable for most of our listenership, but Hey, you know, train more, sleep more, eat sufficient amount of food for your goals, whether that be weight gain, weight loss, whatever the situation is. Yes. Plus or minus drugs. Yeah. (laughs) Depending on your personal (laughs) beliefs and moral (laughs) situation. Right, 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 right. Uh, okay. So it's a good place to, to stop our introduction. We're gonna, chew on this for a while. We'll come back at you with parts two and three of the programming podcast. Austin, any other, any other, uh, things you want to, you want to say? Uh, only things would be to check out the website for upcoming events. We just announced a whole bunch of new seminars as Jordan mentioned earlier in the podcast. And also I think it's always helpful to, uh, plug the old iTunes reviews and, and things like that. Help us out with that stuff. Yeah. We'd appreciate it if yeah. you found this stuff helpful. Yeah. Help us out. Look, I don't use the peach gang hashtag. We need your help. Please, please, please help. Please help. All right. From all of us here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for watching. We'll catch you guys next time.